It is October 1893, and Bunko Kelly and Bigfoot are riding unicorns through the Shanghai Tunnels. Oh, wait, the Shanghai Tunnels aren't real silly. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. We're the Liars Club We get together to pretend that everything is fun Where everyone looks perfect and the party's never done Till we see the sun See the sun Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Long-time listeners to this podcast know, at Kick-Ass Oregon History, we're pretty geeked out about Shanghaiing and those aged yesteryear stories of that illicit waterfront trade. One day, researching the topic, resident historian Doug Kent Crispin stumbled upon the following snippet in a 1933 Oregonian article. It read, By way of introducing a new story... Shanghai Days in the City of Roses, the first installment of which will appear in the Oregonian Sunday, Stuart Holbrook, author, will interview Spider Johnson over KGW tonight at 10.15. Mr. Johnson will tell of the days of Larry Sullivan, boarding house king, Bunko Kelly, Jim Turk, and others who raised Old Nick in the Shanghai Days. The program is the first in a series of four. Just think of it. An actual radio broadcast of Stuart Holbrook and North End legend Spider Johnson discussing the Shanghai days on good old-fashioned analog radio. Four episodes of a legendary interview. Such a treasure of Oregon history that was forever lost to the sands of time. You see, back in the early 1930s, it was pretty rare to record an actual radio program. Most of the time, they were just broadcast at that time slot, over the airwaves. And that was it. It was usually a one-shot wonder, and seldom captured. It was theoretically possible that a script or transcript of the programs has been archived, but that was a small possibility at best. But the resident historian, 
being the real historian that he is, contacted an executive producer at KGW to inquire about the Holbrook-Johnson programs. KGW was then owned by the Oregonian, and the producer sent him there. But the researcher at the Oregonian said there were no KGW radio records that pertained to the Holbrook-Johnson programs. So there we were, at an impasse. Lamenting the loss of these gems in Portland's history, it got me to thinking about what we could do today in our present era to not allow this missed opportunity to future historians. So we're going to start a new series within our survey where we interview local authors about their books to kind of give you a behind-the-scenes look at their work, ass kicker. Some special features, like back when you watch DVDs, right? And appropriate to our hook today, I thought we might speak with Barney Blaylock about a new book he has written on Oregon's Shanghaiers. We started by asking Barney why he chose to write a book on such a well-hashed topic. Well, when I started looking into the topic many, many years ago, I, I bought the whole thing that the whole um, Stuart Holbrook vision of the waterfront. And I thought it was pretty cool. And I'd tell people stories about Bunko Kelly and stuff. And then when I started uh, researching to see if I could uh, verify any of these stories, I found that the truth was a lot more addictive and a lot more interesting than the fiction I'd been fed. And uh, the more I delved, the less I, <laughs> the less I believed Holbrook and uh, the more I delved, the less I believed anybody, even history books that I, that I have on hand. And ordinarily, I wouldn't have uh, wanted to write a book about the Shanghaiers because uh, it's kind of an overdone subject in a way. Everybody that writes about Portland seems to write about Bunko Kelly and, and Shanghaiers are, are kind of, you know, I wrote the Portland Waterfront book and, uh, and I thought that I would uh, get that off my chest in there. And it just wasn't enough. I had to go back and, and at least bring out the things that no one else has bothered to bring out. Now, Astoria plays a, a prominent role in your book and it's about 113 miles uh, river miles that separate Portland from Astoria but the two towns almost play as extensions or neighbors of each other in the crimping trade why is that can can you explain to us why there's just this kind of connection between Astoria and Portland well Portland needed Astoria a lot more than Astoria needed Portland and the reason being the wild rivers, uh, Columbia, both the Columbia and the Willamette. And uh, when John Cooch came here with his, uh, well, he came here twice. He came and checked it out, and then he came back with a shipload of goods to start a store in Oregon City. And uh, it was at that time that he declared the, the clearing area to be the, the head of navigation. And that story has uh, gone on for years and has probably made it into every Oregon history textbook. 
But the fact is, he must have been talking about uh, steamboats, not the large ocean-going sailing ships of the day. Because, well, his ship that he came up here in the... Uh, I can almost remember the name. Starts with a C. <laughs> anyway, the ship's logs are available to look at, and the captain declared that the Willamette was um, could have been navigated by a ship with a nine-foot draft. Now, his draft was like fourteen. So, and that was in uh, that was in the early summer when the river would have been been at its highest. So obviously, the Willamette was not deep enough for that kind of navigation. And the uh, Clackamas River sandbar kept it from, it kept a lot of other kinds of ships from, from making it as far as Oregon City, even steamboats for during some parts of the year. John Cooch said he saw somebody wade across the river at that point. So, you know. Um, so Cooch had to get canoes, these big, heavy, uh, they, the um, canoes of the day carried uh, quite a bit of cargo, but he canoed all of this stuff to Oregon City because, you know, he couldn't get it there with the boat that he had brought. So, starting at Astoria, right, maybe 10 miles up the Columbia, there's a, a big sandbar that they'd been dredging on since the, the 1870s called Hogsback. We're talking about something about 11 miles long. And again, at St. Helens, there is a huge sandbar. And again, at the mouth of the Willamette, there was a huge sandbar called, they called it the Post Office Bar for some reason. And then again, and even a bigger sandbar at Swan Island. And it was the sandbar at Swan Island that um, that Henry Corbett first started the Corps of Engineers digging on in 1869. And it was from 1869 until 1900 is how long it took before they could have a year in Portland where they didn't have to lighter cargo to and from Astoria. What, what does that mean, lighter cargo? That's where you, if you can make it to Portland, you fill the ship as far as it'll get filled, and then you go downriver and uh, get the cargo sent down there with steamboats and barges. And um, actually, a lot of uh, Portland cargo was shipped out of Astoria, but it was always cleared from Portland with the paperwork looking like it came from Portland. It was very important that Portland have a customs house or else they would be at the mercy of San Francisco and have to ship everything that was going overseas through there or coming from overseas. And um, an interesting thing about sailors is that um, most, I really, I think that far more sailors were shipped from Astoria than Portland. And as I get the time, I'm going to make sure that this is absolutely correct because I'm sure that, that somewhere there's still um, some accounting of that. But um, a lot of ships would go down to Astoria and sit maybe 
80% full, even 90% full that have, have to be topped off down there. So since that was the last port, that's where the sailors would be uh, shipped from. And it was um, a favorite thing in Portland for people. This was a, a Patty Lynch trick. He would hang around Portland and befriend some newcomers and tell them all about how there were these jobs in, in Astoria and that they needed people to work in Astoria in the uh, lumber yards or something. And he'd get them down there by steamboat and then he'd arrange it to where they'd get off the steamboat onto a launch and the launch wouldn't go to Astoria, it would go to a ship. Yeah, it was a, a favorite. He'd also do things like uh, ask some kid if he had ever been on a sailing ship before. Now he was a business agent for the sailing ship and, and he was going to go out there and check it out a little later and if the kid wanted to ride along that'd be fine. You know, that's a Many a kid started their maritime career in that manner. Curiosity killed the cat. Yeah. Everyone had their fingers in the pie. Barney explains the role of the shipping commissioner. A shipping commissioner was someone who was supposed to oversee the signing on of sailors to make sure that they weren't drunk or on drugs when they signed the the ship's papers and that they did it of their own free will. And he was also supposed to oversee the paying off of the sailors at the end of a voyage. And there were supposed to be, I think it was, uh, it was in 1876 or something when they first had that, uh, that law, a U.S. federal law. So the shipping commissioners were supposed to be in every major port. And there were many, many years when Portland did not have a shipping commissioner and Astoria did. That in itself is very telling. And the fact is, though, that um, the Americans did only a small fraction of the shipping that the British did. So the person in Astoria that would be signing the most sailors or watching over the signing of sailors would have been this guy named Peter Cherry, who was the vice consul of the British uh, government. He was also a um, marine insurance salesman. And he would have been under uh, the guy in Portland because the guy in Portland, Laidlaw, was uh, the vice consul for the states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. And um, so Cherry would have probably been the single person who was responsible for the largest number of sailors as far as being the guy who oversaw their, their signing. And not only was he supposed to check out um, whether or not they were in their right mind, but he was supposed to look through their gear to make sure that they were provided with the correct kind of um, clothing and boots and, um, and rain gear and stuff. And there's a story in Astoria that was told to me by the um, uh, archivist at the Historical Society uh, 
that um, the guys that were pretending to be sailors who were signing on the names of people who were back at the sailors' boarding house would uh, pass the bag of gear from one to another as they came into Peter Cherry's office so he would see the same gear for everyone that was signing on that ship that day. And I have to say the guy was either like Mr. Magoo, you know, Adam paid it as all get out, or he was on the take. The, um, the, the uh, payment that was due for, for this process of overseeing the, the signing sailors was $5, which is, you know, that's a lot of money back then. And uh, that may have been enough on its own, but there may have been a little extra kicked in there too. There's something we'll never know, just contemplate. of the better-known crimpers in old-timey Portland, helping to sell these sailors into virtual slavery, was Larry Sullivan. And he was quite a fighter, too. Barney told us about one of his more famous bouts. He had been hired by this guy named James Riley, who was a local fighter, to train him. And, of course... Sullivan was hard to get along with, so um, after a while, uh, Riley didn't want to have him train him anymore, and uh, and Sullivan was going around town talking about what weenies all these fighters were out here and how he could beat anybody in the world. And so another big fight was coming up between, I think it was Dave Campbell and uh, Jack Nonpareil Dempsey a guy I admire a lot. And um, because it was illegal to have boxing matches in the city limits of almost every city out here, they would choose a place uh, that was easy to get to for a lot of people. And the only, things, uh, only way to get a lot of people somewhere was if it was on the river. And so they chose a farm on the Washington side and um, Portland early in the morning had a bunch of steamboats down at the steamboat docks waiting for for customers to go out to the fight and steamboats came up from Astoria people rode their horses from the farms around Washington people canoed across from St. Helens and and uh, a large group of people gathered there to watch this fight. And because Sullivan had been shooting off his mouth, 
he was challenged to a, a fight with this guy named uh, it's Tom Ward, and it was going to be sort of a, the a show after the show, after the Dempsey fight. And the Dempsey fight was using Queensberry rules, which were, you know, with boxing gloves and, and very safe, whereas the fight with Tom Ward and Larry Sullivan was using uh, London rules, which means bare-fisted and you can kick and gouge and, you know, just not very uh, sportsmanship-like. But it worked, I guess, in the Bowery's of London. But... Uh, so the Dempsey fight went off really well, and when it was done, um, Larry Sullivan and Ward began to uh, pound on each other, and they did it for hours, hours. And at the end, because it was muddy and rainy, and it was a big mud hole by the time they were done, it, and they were covered with blood and mud, it must have been a spectacle because uh, the very last, the last strength that Sullivan had in his body, he grabbed a hold of Ward and started gouging his eyes out. And they had to be pulled apart, and the fight was given to Ward because of the fouls. But it was so bloody that the papers reported that a lot of people were so disgusted by it that they said they never wanted to see another boxing match again as long as they lived. But even though he lost the match, he came back with a really big reputation because uh, it was an amazing feat. Another infamous Portland crimp was Jim Turk. His progeny received an accounting in Barney's book, now, of course, one of the famous uh, Jim Turk stories is the tale of his crimping having no loyalties, that he even sold his own son into servitude after the man fell into, the boy fell into uh, hard drinking, fast women. But you say that there's a backstory to that yarn that is even more interesting than the well touted tale. Can you tell us about kind of the, the more interesting truth of Jim Turk's son? Well, I think Jim Turk is like a lot of uh, a lot of bullies. They're, they tend to be sentimental, and I think he was sentimental about his sons. I think he loved his sons a lot, and I think he doted on them. He's not about to have something bad happen to him, but his boy was an expert swimmer, so. Um, to make some extra money for his boy, he would uh, sell him to ship captains as a sailor. And, and um, he, his kid would go along with this. This we're talking about Charles Turk. Charles would go along with it and, and act as though he were happy to be back to, back to sea and how he's looking forward to all this. And, and then they get down to about maybe the mouth of the river and you jump overboard and come back and collect his money from his dad. And he did that countless times. And uh, until they tried to do it to the same captain twice, and the captain recognized Charles Turk and decided to keep his uh, mouth shut about it. He let Turk get, a, get aboard. And after they sailed, he clapped him in irons down in, the, down in one of the rooms below. 
but he made sure as soon as he got to Astoria that he alerted the Astoria newspaper that Charles Turk was among the sailors on his ship. And uh, Charles had a long ride, hard labor, and a long way back to Portland, but he made it and uh, lived to tell about it. And of course, Barney examined Bunko Kelly. Now, uh, Bunko Kelly, of course, gets a thorough examination in your book, and he comes out a little, I want to say, not quite as important or not quite as noteworthy as he's been portrayed in, in Oregon lore. Tell, tell us about what you found and, and kind of your, uh, your interpretation of the history. Well, Bunko Kelly is an invention of the mind of uh, Stuart Holbrook, the Bunko Kelly that people know and, and love. Um, the Bunko Kelly of reality was uh, never an important person. He was never a, a sailor's boarding house master. He did have uh, a boarding house when he first came to Portland for a short period of time probably just a few months. And then uh, at the very end of his career, he made the mistake of going into business and having a boarding house with uh, George Powers, who was uh, uh, a runner that had worked for everybody, Sullivan and Turk. And being a um, someone who was in competition with the Larry Sullivan uh, monopoly, and uh, that was just before he was arrested for murder. I think there's a connection. Some people don't, but uh, I think that uh, Sullivan set him up and got him put out of the way. But none of the stories that Stuart Holbrook has told, like uh, selling a cigar store Indian or, or selling a whole pile of drunks who were dying because they were drinking formaldehyde. None of those stories are collaborated in any way, shape, or form. In fact, if you if you read reports of Bunko Kelly in um, around the turn of the century, when he was still he was still in prison, say, and they were people talking about the Shanghai days in kind of a retrospect because it was almost over by then. Uh, the only thing noteworthy that they would mention about him was the murder. And um, it, it took, uh, there was a period of time between uh, the end of the crimping and when people finally wanted to look back and have some nostalgia connected with it that these, all these stories arose because Portland had a bad name in the maritime world for many years. Our cargo had um, a premium placed on it because it was the rivers were hazardous and the crimping situation was was very bad. So we were charged extra for for years, and it wasn't wasn't until around the time of the Oregon Prohibition around. 1914 or 15 when that uh, was lifted 
and people were not, they were happy to see that period go. And when you get on into the 20s, if anybody's seen the waterfront in the 1920s, it was a rack and ruin. It's quaint looking and, and cool as all get out, but, but it was this rat infested pile of, of uh, water log rotting buildings and people were happy to see it gone and the seawall put in. They were also happy to have some protection against the high water that had always seemed to be lapping in the city in the, uh, in the late spring, freshet. So there wasn't a lot of nostalgia until, uh, until the 30s. And when uh, Stuart Holbrook came along and started stirring up uh, everybody's imaginations is when a whole new waterfront was invented for our enjoyment. And here we are chatting yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 130 years later, right? Yeah. Well, Bunko, you know, he was, he lied about everything. And he, he, I don't think, um, I don't think he could tell the truth. If you read his book, he may have told the truth about some of the atrocities in the penitentiary there. But when it came to himself, I mean, he was always the good guy. He was always the guy who was the observer. You'd go around observing all these things. and He was um, shipwrecked with cannibals, and they made him eat some of his, you know, shipmates, and you know, all these stories. Well, everybody, everybody in the world that's ever written about him says that he was a liver puddlian. And, um, in fact... This kind of irritates me because I see this sort of thing in history books, and I mean books written by uh, well, uh, well-credentialed professional historians have written absolute bunk about Bunko Kelly. And the first piece of bunk that they always come up with is that he was a liver puddling. Because all I had to do was look at the Oregon State Census that was taken in the penitentiary, and it says that he was born in Connecticut. So, you know, he couldn't tell the truth about where he was born. He was down in Astoria one time bragging that he was the boss Shanghaier of the Northwest. And, of course, they were happy to print that because they thought of him as a Portland Shanghaier, and, uh, and Portland was the bad guys, and, and they were the good guys. And um, just everything that you, can, that you see written about him is probably bunk. If you pick up Wikipedia, it's bunk, 90% bunk. That's why I wrote this book, is because I got so tired of seeing bunk everywhere I looked, then I thought I would at least write one book that wasn't full of bunk and that had uh, lots and lots and lots of end notes for people who didn't believe my version of things.
Jinping and Shanghaiing are two different things. A master of a ship engages in a business relationship with a crimp to obtain a crew. When the crimp acquires the crew through mostly legal means, that is called crimping. When he does it through nefarious activities against the soon-to-be sailor's will, this action is shanghaiing. But these two terms were often intermingled. Barney explains.、Um, tell us a little about this term, crimping and shanghaiing. Something happens. In、uh, I guess the early well in the 1900s, 1920s, 1930s, where those terms are are kind of interchanged, right? Well, yeah, I know people whose、uh, grandfathers were always saying how they'd been shanghaied in Portland or somewhere. One of them just recently, somebody was telling me about their grandfather who、uh, was shanghaied by Shanghai White. Down there under the steel bridge, and that would have been uh, uh, the guy that was in business with one of the Grants, Jack Grant. Grant and White kept that.、Uh, um, it was an employment agency, basically, and they followed all the laws and、uh, and arranged for sailors for ships and. Did everything that they'd been doing for years, only on the up and up, making the kind of money that they were allowed to make. They didn't have a boarding house at that time; they had an office. But、uh, even before then, I think all through the latter part of the 19th century, that most sailors would have said that they were Shanghaied at one time or another, and some of them. That they were always being shanghaied because if you didn't have any money of your own or any connections in the city you were going to, there was only one choice, and that was a sailor's boarding house. They weren't going to let you just go hang out somewhere. You know, maybe if you were, if you could put up with it, you could go to a mission. Well, I don't think the ones in Portland didn't last very long. The the the、uh, ones that were put together, the Seamen's Mission was as a place for people to stay and as a competition with the cramps that did not last. But、uh, that left the sailors' boarding houses or jail. Because you couldn't walk the streets with no money and and no viable income or、uh, place to stay, because then the city would provide you a place to stay and they'd give you a hammer and have you go out and beat rocks into gravel for their、uh, maintenance crews to use at the different the the different gravel pits. Rock piles, they called them. They had several of them in Portland. One up on Taylor's Road, Taylor's Ferry Road. Kelly Butte was the biggest one. But、uh, I think I'd rather go to a sailor's boarding house than beat rocks into gravel. Very, very true. I think I'd agree with you there. Yeah, at least you, you know, could relax once in a while. <laughs> Interestingly, 
Barney Blaylock puts the total number of men shanghaied, as in taken to sea against their will, as quite low. You put the number of folks that were shanghaied, and by this I mean, you know, the sailors that were taken against their will, maybe they were slipped a Mickey or drugged or something like that, or signed the articles against their will. You put that number at a pretty low figure from say the 1880s to right up to World War One. What, what, what's your what's your estimate and what are you basing that on? Well, the main thing I'm basing it on is when something came, when Shanghai in the classical sense came to light in Portland, it was a big deal. And the, the times that it came to light were few and far between. And what I mean is um, the case of Darius North, for instance, who was Shanghai in Astoria, so that the because uh, the chief of police didn't like him, and some shyster lawyer wanted to get his property away from him. That was nationwide news. And then uh, in um, in Portland, when uh, some. Uh, a person who had learning disabilities was was talked or bullied onto a ship and ended up in New York in a mission and they wrote to Portland to see if somebody knew who he was. You know, that was big news. And these things only happen uh, very rarely. And actually the number of people being shipped total is uh, not large. The American ships, I have the information on the American ships, and there were years <laughs> the only 15 people were shipped out of Portland. Of course, you know, the British were doing lots, lots more. But um, it just doesn't make sense that something like that could be going on in any kind of wholesale you know, manner. Just doesn't make sense at all. I think that there was a lot of people who were unhappy to be sailors that became sailors, but it was through their own like stupidity or just lack of innovation and being so weak-willed that they would be bullied into a situation that they couldn't get out of. But uh, actually, slipped Mickey fins and dragged off to the ships. That's not going to happen that often. It's too much trouble, for one thing. When you can just go up to some greenhorn and use your your silver tongue to talk him onto a ship. Which some is, poor sheep rancher from Umatilla. Yeah, because a lot of people came to town. That was their last resort. They were heading west. They wanted to see the ocean, or they wanted to you know, go to the zoo and see the elephant that was up there or something they just didn't have many plans for their life you know and they especially you think about some kid who grew up on a on a dirt farm out in eastern Oregon he's going to come to the big city he's not going to have any means of doing anything something crops up and he's oh boy there's a job it's not such a bad job. I mean, it's dangerous as all get out, and, and it would depend on your captain. But I've read some uh, quite a few accounts of uh, 
sailing in the latter part of the 19th century, there were a lot of laws in place to keep cruelty from happening. And when cruelty happened on, uh, in the, on the high seas, it became big news, too. I mean, people were, were, had had enough of that sort of thing. And uh, there are plenty of people who were happy to be sailors. It wasn't the miserable life that it might have been in maybe the first part of the 19th century or definitely during the 18th century. We really enjoyed speaking with Barney Blaylock and hope you will check out his new book, The Oregon Shanghaiers, Columbia River Crimping from Astoria to Portland. We'll post a link to it on this episode's page on our website, orhistory.com. Support a local, independent Oregon historian today. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-ass Oregon history is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more kick-ass Oregon history in your life? Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kink Crispin. His terms are so draconian that it is often stated that not even the 13th Amendment could provide safe harbor. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.
orhistory.com.